G'day, g'day. This is Rita Joyan, and welcome to the Unbox Your Gift podcast, How to Turn a Passion into a Profession. I'm Rita Joyan, and my guest today is Hitesh Mehta. And one reason why I wanted Hitesh on the podcast is because he has started a, a startup, a startup that is, is specializes in health tech products. Now, what that means for our audience that listens to this, you may not be involved in a lean startup, you may not be involved in a health tech product, but his journey and what he has done thus far will really resonate with you. Why? Because he's been able to really focus on transitioning from a corporate career into the entrepreneurship in only 2017. And I want to show you how he did that, and he did that on a part-time basis so that he was working part-time in his passion project, and that was creating um, a technology that you would wear on your body that would inform you of any health risks you're having. That is revolutionary. That's not on the market. That's his vision for what he was working towards. And so him and his partner were working, his partner, business partner, were working on this part-time while he was working and earning an income. In three and a half years, they were able to raise $10 million. And that is just in that alone shows courage, shows tenacity, shows vision, shows proof of project, really, if we really want to talk about in terms of where we're at at the moment and what we're looking at things. So in listening to this podcast, my intention is for you to know that transitioning from a corporate career to doing your own thing requires a really big, bold vision. And Hitesh is going to talk about his and how his came about, how to raise money, how to be able to raise money for the vision, for the goal, for the project, for the startup that you want to have, or just for the side gig that you want to do. And most importantly, the technology that he's working on. I mean, yes, we look at the blueprint of how people have been able to transition from corporate to business. We look at that blueprint. But more importantly, it's the product and it's the impact that he's working on to create. And that in itself is a pool. And by listening to Hitesh and interviewing today, I've realized, you know, the book by Simon Sinek, Start With Why? This really, I would sum up this interview with, it's Start With Why. It was his why that had him found, find his business partner. It was his why that was maybe conscious or unconscious in his mind that led him to raise 10 mil, to build a company within three and a half, four years of 17 people, to be able to be recognized for his work, even though he still doesn't have his product in the market yet. Let that sink in for a second. He still doesn't have his product in the market yet. It's projected to be in the future, but even though it's not, he is still doing great guns. And my intention is I hope that you get the blueprint that Hitesh has done, his courage and tenacity, and then you just ride on those coattails and take his blueprint and tweak it into your own life and how you would use that. So without further ado, Hitesh Mehta on the Unbox You Give podcast. Hitesh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rita. Great to I, be here. Yeah, look, I, I, when I looked at your work and I looked at your bio and I looked at what you were doing, it's something that I've not interviewed on the podcast before. You lead a med tech or you co-found a med tech company 
developing a continuous molecular monitoring platform. And I want to know what on earth that is, because for our listeners and for me, that just sounds completely left of the middle from what we usually discuss and how what, how that actually is going to prevent your vision is for it to a molecular monitoring platform to prevent death. And that's just going to be something very interesting to uh, talk about. But before I do, you've successfully raised $10 million in three and a half years of uh, forming your company, Neutronics. And that's interesting in and of itself. But before I even get to that, you only started your entrepreneurship journey in 2017, which is not that far back. Yes. And so I want to know, please, for our viewers that are, would be watching this on YouTube and our listeners on the podcast. How did that happen? How did you go from 2017 to saying, I'm going to start a med tech company? It's not like you started a coaching company or doing freelancing. Like this is serious leap. What made you go from working for a corporate to going into the entrepreneurship arena? Yeah, there's a lot to cover there, right? Um, so, you know, the journey as in the desire to jump into a startup and 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 do a med tech startup in particular started a little bit before that um you know in my corporate career i found myself having graduated worked for about 10 12 years in the corporate world in a in a role where i was in healthcare but i wasn't in healthcare you know i was as part of ibm watson health uh, we would regularly be looking at implementing new models of care, new models of service delivery, helping clients roll that out to have a better impact on people's lives, uh, improving access to healthcare. So an example might be uh, improvement in disability services right, and rolling that out or the Obamacare rollouts that happened in the US. So I was part mm -hmm. of that. I was regularly working in the US. Uh, so this is a global management consulting sort of role. And so, so you, oh, sorry to stop you there. What did you study at uni to enable you to get to that? So I studied commerce and IT as a double degree at the ANU. And then while I was at IBM, um, I also started to do my um, MBA, my uh, executive MBA course from the Uni of Melbourne. Okay. And then in corporate, you went into the corporate sector. So it's a private consulting company that you worked for. Correct. I was in Canberra for a while, so I worked a little bit in private, but working for government clients and then mm -hmm. ended up uh, joining a company which was acquired by IBM. And mm -hmm. so that brought me into this sort of role. Yeah. Okay. okay. Please, sorry. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's good. So, so as part of that, I got a flavor for, you know, where we would do projects with these clients, because mm -hmm. these are not finance clients. These were not, you know, education clients. They were, they were focused on helping people who really needed help in the healthcare space. Right. And we would come in and work with these clients to improve their systems, improve mm -hmm. their services. And you could really start to see a flavor of impact, you know, uh, coming through that. But it was it was indirect. You know, mm -hmm. we weren't directly there volunteering on the ground, but the systems we rolled out had a real material impact on people's lives. So case in point, there was a project we were doing up in Queensland. And as part of the rollout, you know, this was around disability support we rolled out this new process and the new system and we we're on the in the war room if you will making sure the rollout is going well and getting regular updates from all the sites one of the sites uh, gave us a story which was a family came in that had a very severe disabled son mm -hmm. and they came in because they were looking to basically say we can no longer um, take care of our son we want to give our son up um, you know it's just too difficult and as part of the new process and the rollout they understood better what support was available 
when that support would be made available, how much funding they'd be able to access, and how quickly. And that gave them the confidence to say, we can keep our family together. We can actually help to support our son at home. We don't have to break up our family, you know? And you would hear those type of stories as we we're doing these projects over and over again. In this US as well, you know, we expanded one of the projects I did, we expanded coverage for 25,000 children who hadn't had coverage, basic healthcare coverage that we take for granted in this country, you know? So as part of that journey, um, I got to a point where it was, I don't wanna go further up the corporate ladder and be removed from mm. impact. I want to have a bigger impact. I want to find a way to actually be more involved and be closer. And so that started an introspective, you know, reflection journey, which was, do I volunteer? You know, how do I, how do I meet that need? Um, do I switch careers? Um, what do I do? I had been doing an MBA. I had finished my MBA and that had also opened up my horizons to beyond just IT and commerce. You know, I had this whole new outlook and a whole new set of skills around how you run a business, how you grow a business, how you uh, model finance, all this gambit of business administration skill set from the MBA. And again, it was about how do I best apply that? And sometimes when you're on that sort of journey, it's just timing is also important. So as part of this, I was having a lot of conversations. I was going to a lot of meetups. I was going to a lot of workshops to uh, on this journey of self-discovery for my career. And that's when I met my co-founder. And we had a shared At a principle. workshop? You met him, met him or her at a workshop? Him at a business workshop, yeah. Oh. So we actually met at a business workshop and, and he is an entrepreneur. He's you know done this before. Mm -hmm. We're having a discussion, which turned into beer, which later we met up for lunch again the following day. Um, and essentially, it, we found an alignment for wanting to have an impact in the world, right? Mm -hmm. wanting to actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. And we knew that there was this common challenge in healthcare. We'd seen it personally, where yeah. people often struggle. It's a very transactional engagement. Yeah. You only go to a doctor if you fall sick, yes. right? not proactive. Um, so it's a more a sick care system than an actual healthcare system. Oh, love that. Okay. Yeah. So that, that was the alignment, right? That was what started us on the journey in 2017 that has become Neutromics today. It was a, a alignment of values, an alignment of principle, alignment of wanting to have a bigger impact in the world. Um, and that is where we started. So when you went, when you found your co-founder and you thought, let's start this company called Neutromics, where we actually look after healthcare, not what you said, sick care. Mm -hmm. You see a doctor when you're sick, right? That's, pretty, that's a very interesting distinction. Um, when you did that, did you go completely cold turkey into Neutromics? Like no income from your corporate job now, you're going completely into this 100%. Is that what happened? Or was there a, an adjustment or a slow period of going into the Neutromics so that the income wouldn't die straight away? Yeah, yeah, great question. So it was staggered. Uh, it was it was taking a, a prudent, a financially prudent, but still very entrepreneurial approach. So, because oftentimes this is the challenge people have. I have a mortgage. I have young kids. How am I going to do this? You know, I may have to support other family members. I'm still paying off my education debts. Blah blah blah. And if you allow it to, you can create a lot of self-imposed barriers on pursuing your passion right so there were those challenges for me as well but I have a mortgage I have young kids my wife at that time wasn't working so it was a single income wow right? she was on maternity leave wow 
And I had already taken a hit because I had by that stage left IBM. I was working for a, a local corporate so I could be closer to the family. You know, I was in my IBM days, I was traveling literally every two weeks. I was away from the family. So that takes a hit on the on the family side as well. So I was trying to balance that, right? And now, but overriding all of those standard run-of-the-mill life concerns, if you will, mm. was this drive to play a bigger role, this drive that mm. I can add more value. And I just have to find my path to add more value in life. And so said, okay, why don't we start part-time, right? Let's just start on the journey. And, and this is where I, I mentioned the alignment in values and principles, right? This was what was so important in finding the right co-founder because Peter had the same alignment. Right? He was already working on a different business, but he had a passion for this space, just like I had a passion for this space. So we both started initially with a part-time approach. We thought, let's explore it. Let's see where this goes. Mm -hmm. And we built small steps and tests. So one of the tests was if what we're talking about as a concept has merit and we had some idea on how this could work, then we need to validate it, mm. right? So it's a very lean approach. And so what we did was we actually pitched it to the uh, MedTech actuator, which was a med medical applicator, uh, sorry, accelerator that was uh, launching in Australia. Oh, great. Yeah. So in terms of timeframes, right? So we had met in September. Mm -hmm. We pitched to the actuator in December. And we were part of the first six companies that were accepted into the program. No. Which is and yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so that was going to start early in the new year. Okay. And so that was the first time I said to my family that I'm pursuing this journey now. Right? I'm going to do it part time. This is why. And I need to have the support to be able yeah. to, uh, uh, to uh, pursue this career, uh, dream of mine. So interestingly, if you had not been granted when you went to the accelerator and they did not give you the grant, would that have impeded on your decision? Do you think? No, no. So it would have meant, you know, it was a set, it would have been a setback, but mm -hmm. you don't let one setback kill your passion, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So certainly it would have been a setback, but I think we would have still pursued alter other approaches right mm -hmm. and and we still were part-time this wasn't a funding grant right it, this was acceptance into an accelerator to say we think what you're looking at has merit yes, yes. and we want yeah. you to support you to work on it now to give you again uh, for your listeners these type of programs are designed they know when companies come in over 90 95 percent will probably fail mm. right it's about helping those who are going to get through the hurdle, get to the next. So you get from 90% fail to then 80%, 60%, blah, 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 to eventually you're going to have pretty good chance of success. And that's the journey you go on. And this is to help those who are going to be able to make it get there faster and yeah. have the right support and the right tools and the right financial support system as well. So it was a good validation step. Yes. And we pivoted a fair bit on the, on the, problem we were trying to solve as part of that what journey. What was the problem you were pitching to them that you wanted to solve? So originally we were pitching a problem around micronutrients. So the fact that you may have a vitamin D deficiency or you may mm -hmm. have these other deficiencies, you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we pitched and we had an initial technology concept. And we learned very, very quickly in that program that, well, it's not a problem customers care about. You have to do mm -hmm. a lot of interviews. It's not a problem. Cl um, clinicians care about mm -hmm. right 
So we, we looked at, well, what are the problems clinicians care about? What are the problems customers to care about? And for clinicians, chronic disease is a big problem and trying to prevent chronic disease is a, is mm -hmm. a challenge. So uh, but disease, so like cholesterol, diabetes, is that what we're talking about? Correct, correct. Diabetes in particular is where we started, right? So mm -hmm. diabetes is a huge problem, impacts, uh, you know, um, millions and millions of patients. Uh, I think it's about 420 million patients globally. In the US alone, there's 32 million diabetics, but there's okay. 84 million at, at risk. So they're classed as pre-diabetic. Oh my God. Yes. And it's similar sort of uh, ratios elsewhere as well. So in Australia, you know, there's, I think, approximately a million diagnosed and uh, at risk, it's, it's estimated to be about 2 million uh, Australians. And the challenge is if you are identified, Rita, as being at risk, but you're not yet a diabetic, you can't access any support. You can't get any reimbursement. You can't get um, you know, unless you're severely on down that pathway, mm. right, where they say, we're going to classify you as having a disease, mm. you don't really get that much access to support. It's, the bottom line is they tell you eat less and exercise mm. more, mm. right? Yeah. And so that was the light bulb moment for us. We were speaking to a clinician who said, well, you do these um, diabetes awareness weeks, yeah. and you stand there and you finger prick people. And mm. what happens if you identify someone who's at risk. Mm. And that was the conversation. It was basically, well, we can't really give them treatment or support because they're not yet diabetic. There's no reimbursements. You know, there's, that's mm -hmm. not the model. So we educate them. We tell them eat less and exercise more. And we all know trying to lose weight or trying to exercise, how well that, that works for everyone, right? Especially in lockdown. Especially, Especially in lockdown. lockdown. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I had, you know, so, so, in parallel to this, I had seen personal experience. My mom has type two diabetes. My uncle has type two diabetes. My wife had gestational diabetes. And it was actually for me personally, it was that experience that also led me to, to this as yes, I think this could be a problem worth solving because of that personal experience aspect. And Peter had similar experiences from friends and family members mm -hmm. that he, he could draw on, right? But in particular for my wife, I saw in the second pregnancy, because she had gestational diabetes twice, in the second pregnancy, she controlled it so well, she actually lost weight during her pregnancy. Well, well that's revolutionary. So it was quite revolutionary. In the first pregnancy, it went where she was identified, it was increasing, she had to go on insulin. So in the last few months, every time she'd have to take an insulin injection to manage her glucose levels, mm -hmm. to suddenly in the second pregnancy, no insulin and actually losing weight just by controlling her diet, you know? That was quite insightful. Yes. And well, so how did she change her diet? Just for people, like, how did she change her diet? <laughs> well, it was, it was very, very hard, right? A lot of uh, rigor, a lot of manual, you know, working out and, and calculating and just being very, very regimented, which most people cannot do. And, and so she only did it because a calorie it's a few deficit? months. Is that what I mean? Like counting your calories? Is that what she would have done? It's, it's about carb intake, yeah. Yeah, so it's about in decreasing your carb intake. And, and so that was where we pivoted as part of the Accelerate program to say, well, actually, this is a big problem. This is billions of dollars in healthcare cost. And this pe these people, these individuals who are at risk today are eventually going to get the disease. You know, it may be a year 
maybe five years down the track, but they're going to get the disease because there's no support. And then they start to cost the healthcare system a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. So in the US, for example, like I mentioned, there's 32 million diabetics, there's 84 million at risk who are coming. And you can you can imagine that burden, mm -hmm. and there's no support structures. There's no apart from education programs. There's yeah. no technology support, and so the concept we pivoted to was a real-time biofeedback approach. So it was basically a, a wearable that would give you this molecular data, and you would use that to inform your lifestyle choices. And we looked at what's called continuous glucose monitoring technology that's already mm -hmm. available for diabetics. Yeah. And we used that to test the concept uh, amongst ourselves and engineers and friends and family. And we saw good validation in that approach. So fast forward to where we are today, we're no longer looking at prevention because of broader macro challenges that you know people aren't really willing to pay for prevention. And as we learned along the journey, you can't just monitor glucose. You also have to be able to monitor other markers of interest like your triglycerides, like insulin, like there's other markers. You need to have a holistic picture. So while and you're so, doing these tests, sorry to interrupt there, while you're doing these yeah. tests, you're actually doing group focus groups to get this data, to get this feedback of how to, you know, tweak your journey of how to pinpoint the problem so you can provide the solution. Is that it's a focus no, no, it wasn't focus group. It was basically interviewing one-on-one -on -one deep qualitative interviews with individuals who face the problem. So we started with who's tried to lose weight or who's had experience with being identified as pre-diabetic interviewed them, understood okay. what they did, how they hacked together a solution. And is that from family or friends that you know? Or are you going to an organization that can give you a list of names who are willing to be contacted? No, we did that ourselves. So we started with friends and family and then expanded out. You know, somebody would say, I know X, Y, Z person wow. and they'd introduce us and we'd do that. So it, this is a lean startup approach that you can apply. And actually corporates, yes. when the corporates have internal innovation programs, they teach the same thing. Mm. And that's how I learned it, actually. I learned it. Uh, at Australia Post, because we used to learn a, run a corporate innovation program. And that's where I learned the basic tools of following that process. And we had uh, Rob Crowder, who's our head of product. He was working with us at the time, and he had a similar experience and background. And, you know, we drove that collectively mm -hmm. uh, with him taking the lead. Um, and so that was great. And that got us to the understanding of what type of technology solution we need to build. Uh, but as we were building that technology solution, COVID hit. Mm. And that obviously has been a massive disruptor for everyone, mm -hmm. right? So part of what we were seeing was there was an acceleration in healthcare trends, people accepting telehealth, people accepting remote patient monitoring, yes. people wanting to be a bit more proactive, but that still is coming. It's not yet here. Right. But underpinning all of that was this common challenge about how do I get the right data to make an informed decision. Right. right? Mm. And now we had a technology solution that could help deliver that. But was yeah, it. Sorry to interrupt you. The technology solution, you're saying you have something that someone would wear that would inform them of what is going on in their body. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So, so as I mentioned, there's that technology already available for diabetics, okay. but it is a medical device. Yeah. It is um, uh, only able to do glucose. And it's revolutionary technology. You know, it's a $4 billion market in and of itself. Okay. What we started to expand into was how do we evolve that? 
to be able to measure other markers of interest. So that's why we call it a continuous molecular monitoring platform, because now we have the capabilities to not just do glucose, we can do other metabolites, we can look at doing proteins, we can do drugs, we can do hormone monitoring. So there's this huge new world of monitoring that opens up for clinicians. That's what's so exciting. And, and that's where we had a second pivot, where we looked at this and talked to a lot of clinicians to see it, uh, what are the broader unmet needs? Yeah. What are the more acute pulls from the market? And what was clear was, you know, prevention is absolutely something that has to be done. But typically that's a problem somebody has where they still got time, they got a year or five years to solve that problem. We actually have patients who are in hospital who are dying from a fast moving disease. We're trying to dose them and we can't dose them effectively, right? We can't manage them well because the biomarkers are moving too fast or the drug concentrations are not known. So that's an unmet need right now. And, and that's where you're talking about weeks or days or hours to save somebody's life. And so that was our current focus. We, we basically looked at this holistically, spoke to a lot of clinicians mm -hmm. and saw that there was this clear pull that if we could immediately look at building this as the first product, we could start to help save people's lives. And that's where our vision came from, a world mm -hmm. with zero preventable deaths due to a lack of timely molecular data. Amazing, and that data would be would be realized by wearing um, a healthcare, what, what a product or a gadget on you that would then monitor your sugar levels, your cholesterol. It would just let you know what's going on in your body so that mm -hmm. you could address it. Is that correct? Correct. That, that's our vision. A, a patch for every patient. So you wear this wearable. Mm -hmm. It's monitoring under the surface of the skin, so it is slightly invasive, but not not too invasive, and it gives you all of this biomarker data. Mm. Where we're starting today is the first application is on vancomycin. It's a life-saving antibiotic. It's in the top 10, top 20 list of medications for the WHO. It's often given for fast-moving conditions like bacteremia, sepsis, infection, essentially, uh, which can kill you very, very quickly. And it has a Goldilocks zone or a narrow therapeutic window is a clinical mm -hmm. term, but think of it as a Goldilocks zone problem. Too high, it's toxic for the patients too low and you're not treating the patient at all and the disease is getting worse yeah. so you have to get it in a very narrow window and today the clinicians take a blood draw every 12 hours mm -hmm. that goes to the pathology lab that mm -hmm. needs to get analyzed it needs to come back mm -hmm. in the meantime damage may already be occurring or the dose may not be right for the patient right. you don't know that information for hours you may have already given them the second dose and then you get the results back so 60% of doses today are not in the right window. 10 to 20% of patients end up with acute kidney injury, which leads to further complications for the patients. That's a real need, acute need right now. And so what we're saying is we, in our technology platform, the first product, we can give you thousands of data points. When you come in to make an informed decision about your patient, we can tell you exactly what the concentration levels are. There's no need to take a blood draw. There's no need to send it to a pathology lab. Oh, no need to take a blood draw. That just sounds too good to be true. So with this technology that you're working on to create, you would be obviously um, selling this to not only general practitioners, but like you say, other clinicians. And then they would then 
diagnose or tell them that this is what you need to their patients. Is that correct? Yeah, so we're starting with hospitals um, because that's where the experts are. That's where th this acute need is. But the, the platform is designed to be usable in an outpatient setting. So you can wear it as a patient when you discharge your weight. You can wear mm -hmm. it as a patient in the comfort of your home. Yeah. And over time, we also want to expand it to the our original focus around prevention. So you, you could, you know, start to get um, you're identified as being at risk of heart mm -hmm. disease mm -hmm. or of diabetes mm -hmm. or of chronic kidney disease. Mm -hmm. And you can get a patch that will help you stay healthy for longer, that will help prevent you going down that pathway too quickly, right? Right, right, right. This is, I mean, this is why you've had to raise $10 million in the, in the three and a half years because, but, but before, I mean, that's, I want to talk about how you did that how you actually raise the money because this is a long this is you've got to use a lot of patience to get to where you want to go because it's the trials it's talking to people it's getting the data to back yes. it up now i want to ask you when you started when you went to the accelerator program and they yeah. say we believe in you that gave you a boost of a backup to say that you know what you're doing is on the right track you know we will help you along the way at that point in time, are you full-time into working for Nutromics for your company? Like, are you, are you still staggering into, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Peter and I at that time was still part-time. Um, but as we get further and further down the path, we saw more and more validation. Yes. yes. And we, we got our first investment as part of that program. Mm -hmm. And we also put on, we, we then put in some money ourselves as well. So that's okay. what kickstarted it. And and there was a staggered pathway where, again, Peter had the time and the capabilities to say, okay, I, I'm now ready to start to spin down my current business, and I'm going to go full-time on this. Mm -hmm. And we were applying for funding. Um, part of the money that we raised is actually from federal grants. So we got a CRCP, thanks to the Department of Industry Innovation, that really launched uh, a lot of the technical work. And that's when um, he, Peter had gone full-time a few months before that, mm -hmm. and we got that announcement, and then I went to full-time a few months after that, okay. uh, once we'd secured that initial funding. And, you know, now fast forward to today, we're 17 people. We were basically, wow. at the beginning of the pandemic, it was still Peter and I, uh, Peter's wife, part-time in mm -hmm. internal. Mm -hmm. And a lot of researchers external as part of the collaborations that we had and the grants that we had. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's, we still got some of those collaborations ongoing, mm -hmm. but we're now almost 17 people internal and we're planning to be at about 22 or 23 people before the end of the year. I love that. You know, you talk about Peter a lot. He's the co-founder. He's the guy that you met in the business workshop to say, let's do, I, I've, I, I've been told that when you choose a partner for a company or for a business or for a startup or anything, it's like you're getting married to them in that you are basically sharing everything, like in terms of that compatibility in business, in values, like you say, has to exist. Otherwise, even if you've got a great idea and you're both driven and you're both action driven, it's mm -hmm. just going to fall apart. How did you determine that Peter was going to, yes, you should share the vision. You said that, but how do you, because some part-time partners get together and they have a shared vision, but they, I mean, I've seen people who just run podcasts, like something as simple as that, who come together, but then 12 months later, they're, they're not longer existing because it just didn't work out. So what would your advice be for when you're drilling a partnership, whether it's starting a med tech company 
or mm. starting anything. Like, how do you look for the one who's going to be long-standing? Yeah, it takes time and effort, right? I, it, this wasn't the first time, right? I tried to look at doing a startup or, or talk to others about potentially uh, going and doing a startup. Um, and it wasn't the first time Peter had done it, right? Mm -hmm. And and you're right, it is, it is a challenge. Um, and I think we had this upfront conversation about it, exactly that. Um, and this is where the alignment was so important because the foundation was built on having very, what we call radical transparency. So we tried to be very open and very honest. Mm -hmm. And that would often lead to a lot of robust debates right. and, and discussions. But you knew that was coming from a place where we were trying to improve the working relationship or mm -hmm. trying to improve the business. Mm -hmm. It wasn't designed, it was always coming from good intention. It wasn't designed to be a personal attack. Right. Mm -hmm. It was about self-improvement and improvement of us collectively for the business we were trying to build to achieve the vision we had. So there was a common purpose we shared, mm -hmm. a common alignment in the foundations of our values. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, there was a lot of work, a lot of debates, a lot of discussions about how we work together, mm -hmm. how we want to build the company and having that trust. And that's been built over years. Now it's you know nearly four years down the track. So we have that certain level of understanding and trust. But it was a lot of hard work. It was like you described like a marriage, right? Yes, yes, uh, yes. yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the business marriage, it's, a, it's coming together. Of, and like you said, uh, it's very interesting that you said you had those robust conversations because if you couldn't have had those, then you wouldn't have lasted six months, you know. Correct. You couldn't, you couldn't. Yeah, correct. And, and that's something we're actually trying to build into our culture now mm -hmm. is how do we bottle that? How do we keep that robust discussion, mm -hmm. that diversity and respect of opinions yeah. um, as part of our culture on, a, on an ongoing basis? Because it makes us who we are and it makes Absolutely. us stronger. Absolutely. So four years in, um, but in three and a half, you raised 10 mil. How did you do that? How did you raise $10 million for an, literally an idea? Starting, well, you, you do build validation and you yes, show yes, value yes, yes, on yes, the yes, way, of yes. course, yeah. But um, there's no like final product, you know, there's not like here it is, you know, you know, so correct. that's great in and of itself. You're a great salesperson, really, to create 10 million or to raise 10. So that's what's interesting. How would you have gone about doing that? Yep. Yeah, um, and and it was a collective. I mean, Peter's uh, always takes the lead in pitching. Just when we're talking to investors, uh, he's a great uh, at pitching, and you know, you got to know each other's strengths. Mm. Um, and 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 be able to work collaboratively on that as well with with any founding team. Um, so the way we did that is, my strength is more on understanding and analyzing the landscape and the situation and looking at it from all angles, right? So we realized very quickly that one trying to do any startup is hard, right? A fintech or a SaaS solution is is relatively easy because a lot of people in Australia understand it, but it's still going to be hard to raise money for any startup. Two, we're trying to disrupt or change the way an industry works. And the way we need to do that is to build a very deep tech solution, right? So we're talking about building some revolutionary new hardware, revolutionary new sensors, revolutionary then inputs into an AI engine down the track that can actually be used by clinicians for augmenting their decision-making capabilities. We're not there yet, but that's part of the broader vision. Yeah. And three, trying to raise that money in Australia is is a challenge as well because Australian VC community is very small, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of big com companies migrate or move to the US for that reason. Silicon Valley, Israel, UK, there's certain hubs which attract mm -hmm. these type of companies. Mm -hmm. 
So it definitely has been a challenge, but you don't let that um, slow you down. We looked at it not as a weakness, but as an opportunity. And the opportunity for us was while the VC community isn't going to buy into too early a, a med tech company in Australia, there's a lot of research grants available in Australia. There's a lot of uh, R&D benefits that are available in Australia, right? Mm -hmm. So typically those would go to universities or to, to R&D companies, but we looked at that as an opportunity to say, well, um, this wind of change is coming. There's a focus that, you know, I think Australian leadership understands that we're pretty high in terms of basic research in, in the world, but we're very, very poor at translation of research into actual products and services mm -hmm. from Australia. Mm -hmm. And that is a challenge that needs to be addressed. And that's where funding is currently being pushed. So that's what we targeted as a starting point. We were looking at raising money from the market and talking to angel investors and VCs. At the same time, we started to push for grants. And that was where we first got our break. We, we first received one grant right. and then we received a second grant. Right. Um, and then that first grant led to actually a, a, a VC investor coming on board. Mm. And recently with the reinfection work we've done, we've just finished a, a raise, a $5.7 million raise. So that's where all the money has come from. You know, Part of it is non-dilutive grants. Part mm -hmm. of it is the R&D benefit scheme, which is available to companies like ours who are doing deep research. And part of it is investment market, money we raise from the market. Now, the reason why I'm explaining all that is because a lot of startups will, uh, founders, early, especially first-time entrepreneurs, will look at what comes out of Silicon Valley, what comes out of, you know, the, the, the shining lights, if you will, and think you can only raise money from VCs or you can only raise money from uh, angels, right, at a certain point. That is not true, right? You can find a way to diversify the capital you're raising. You can access a lot of different um, streams of capital yeah. uh, to build the financial basis, basis you need to launch your company. And some companies can bootstrap it. They can get to revenue fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, others, deep tech like ours, you know, you can build those infliction points. You can show the value being created and then you can attract the right capital. So what's your projection of being able to generate revenue for the company? So we're looking to launch our first product in 20, early 2024. Um, and part of it's because it's a regulated um, yeah. industry, right? So we have to show the manufacturing. We have to have quality assurance and so forth. So we've done our proof of principle device. We're doing our prototype. We're about to do our first in human trial. This has never been done before in the world. And wow. we're doing that uh, next year, uh, early next year. Um, and then we'll use a lot of those value infliction points next year to do our next year, uh, uh, fundraise. And how are you using that 10 million at the moment? Like, what are you putting it towards? So a lot of it is going into staff and building out our technology capabilities. Um, you know, the technology platform we've built is, is really a global collaboration. We've licensed in some technology from US. We're building some here. We're looking to actually uh, stand up R&D and manufacturing in Australia. So, you know, it's a huge global collaboration. And right now we've been bringing the team to Melbourne and starting to grow the capabilities here. Mm -hmm. So combination of that is obviously hiring people, building our technology, the research collaboration. So we have research collaborations with Monash, with UNSW, mm -hmm. with RMIT, mm -hmm. with St. Vincent's Hospital, with all these institutes um, in Australia, but also uh, overseas in the US. Mm 
And so there's a lot of deep research that happens as a result. And because you're saying you're looking, you've got a team of 17 and you'd be looking to expand to at least 22 in the future mm -hmm. coming up. What kind of skill sets, what kind of people are you looking for to hire into the company? First and foremost, we look for aptitude and cultural fit. You know, there, there's a lot of roles we're going to be advertising. In fact, we are currently recruiting for a CFO mm -hmm. or a head of finance, not a CFO, sorry, a head of finance. Mm -hmm. And we're looking to recruit for a chief medical officer. We're looking to recruit engineers. Uh, we're going to be recruiting software uh, engineers and, and skills, user design, uh, UX experience skills, and so yeah. forth, right? Mm -hmm. So you're building a business <clears throat> from the ground up. You need to hire in a lot of different units, a lot of different functions. Yeah. Um, but first and foremost is alignment to our mission, alignment to our cultural values, um, uh, alignment to that aptitude. Yeah. Uh, because startups are very dynamic. They're fast moving. There's mm -hmm. a lot of uncertainty. You need to be able to thrive in that. Yeah. What would it What would it take? Would there be what circumstance, or is there a circumstance where you would say, you know, this is all too much. I think I'm just going to go get another job. Would there be a circumstance that would force you to do that? Me personally. Yeah. I think not anymore. I, I think, like, like I said, for, for a period of time, there was the, you know, yeah. um, part-time, yeah. trying to have a steady day job, Yeah. but balancing this. But ultimately, to succeed, you have to have full focus. You have to be all in. Mm. And we're now well past that stage. And even if, you know, God forbid, we, we decide Neutromics isn't the right anymore or whatever in the, in the mm -hmm. future, I would still look to do another startup. I'd still look to have another role, another impact to play mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine anything different. And, and I say that because you said before, you know, you were in a corporate consultancy and there was a moment where of decision where you thought to yourself, if I go up the corporate ladder, then I'm not going to be in the, the arena of impact. I'm going to have to go up and that removes me. So therefore you made the decision to go into the entrepreneurial stage. And that's what a lot of us, and that's exactly what happened to me that I chose between not moving up the corporate ladder and doing my own thing, because mm -hmm. you, know, you, you, you get removed from that love. And my question to you is, if someone is listening right now and they're at that point where I've got to make a decision because if I'm going to go up and I'm going to go into the next income bracket, well, then I've got to sacrifice what I love doing to get into management, senior management, executive, and so on and so forth, become partner in the company, in the law firm, because mm -hmm. that's how you make more money, not just doing more, um, more, more cases. What would you say to, to someone who's in that decision of not knowing which way to go? How would you try and manage your mind about the best decision to make for the individual? Like, how would you go about that decision-making process for you? Yeah, so, so to clarify, right, so... I, I, maybe I didn't explain this well enough, but when I was talking about not going up the corporate ladder, that was because existing large organizations, you get lost in just the, the yeah. standard grind, right? You, you get yeah. removed from purpose. Mm. You get removed from impact. So it's not that you have to give up going up the corporate ladder to do a startup, right? For me, it was about, I wanted to do something with impact. And that meant perhaps starting with something smaller or starting with something where I can direct that focus and that vision. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we're doing along with Peter and I together. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. as we grow, we are also going to be going up the ladder in Neutromics, right? Yes, we're, going to, we're going to be building a bigger team. So you can still have that corporate career type growth or progression. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you come into an entrepreneurial mindset, a growth mindset, right? Mm -hmm. 
you don't have to follow the same path as everyone else does. You can make your own path. You can actually look at, I'm willing to give up. This is the decision I made. I'm willing to give up a particular pathway, a particular salary pathway to try and pursue my own passion. Mm-hmm. And essentially what I'm doing is if it works, I am, I'm deferring my reward to the end, right? And then my reward is really showing that this technology saved people's lives or this technology made an impact in the world. Everyone has different motivations. For some, it might be having a very successful exit, and that's perfectly valid for for that individual. For us, it was about showing that the technology is going to make an impact in people's lives. Mm. So if I'd stayed in a services company, I'm going to be, and I continue on a corporate ladder, I'm going to be very far removed from that, is Mm. what I felt. Going into this journey means I'm closer to that. I can I can direct where we want to have the impact, and then as we grow up the our company and go up the corporate ladder internally in the company, we're still going to have a big impact. But we're going to have a big impact in the world, right? That was my passion. Okay. That was where where I started. Yeah. And so I guess the key takeaway message there is you can still look to be entrepreneur. You can still look to to jump out of corporate and still have that career pathway if that's what you choose. But at least you then get to direct where your energy is focused and align it with your passion and mm-hmm. your your dreams, right? And you don't have to go and start your own startup to do this. You could look at early stage startups like we are today, and there's plenty of us uh, others in Australia who are rapidly growing. So you can come in as an early employee. You can go up the ladder pretty quickly in that corporate mm-hmm. in, in that startup environment. Yeah. And you still get to be part of the founding team yeah. or the early employee team. Absolutely. That's beautifully said. Beautifully said. And um, I just wanted to ask a final question. How do you, because you're on the podcast right now, we're talking about the company, where it's going and all these things. How do you divide your time for someone that's listening between actually doing the, the work that's needed to prepare the product and doing the, the marketing, being able to hire people? Like, how are you using your time? Yeah. <laughs> um, so when it was it was a smaller team, that's you you wear many many different hats. You are it. You are it. Exactly. So that would mean you know a long a lot of long days, a mm. lot of uh, time sacrificed from mm. with family, right? To focus on your business weekends. Now that we're growing, we're we're at this critical mass stage where we can start to delegate a lot of that and share the responsibilities across the team. Mm-hmm. And we have trust that the team can deliver, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've hired the best people for the job. So, you, so now it is easier. I, I'm still, we're still often context switching, right? Mm-hmm. Because we work across finance and product mm-hmm. and marketing and mm-hmm. engineering and so forth, as you said. But now we have more people to actually help us with delivering on the vision. So mm-hmm. it, it, a lot of where I focus my my mental capacity, if you will, is, is making sure that the culture is still growing right, making sure we're still focused on our North Star, mm-hmm. making sure we're planning ahead with our capital raises, with, with our funding strategy, with our product strategy to deliver on that vision mm-hmm. and trying to remove roadblocks from the team's pathways. Let them get on with the best job they can do yeah. and we bring the right resources to bear mm-hmm. when they need them. So that and means you were aware of going into all this other stuff because your vision was to create a product that would save lives, right? But did, were you aware that part of the, the journey is going to re- require you to come away from that and work on the actual the operation of the business, which is the culture, which is removing roadblocks? 
you are aware of that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I was okay with that. I mean, if I if I'd wanted to just be hands-on engineering or, or software development, I would have gone for that pathway. I think okay. this was this was about understanding that you can't have an impact as an individual alone. You have to work in an ecosystem. You have to grow an organization that's going to have an impact. Mm. And growing an organization to have an impact means aligning it to where you want to go. You know, the vision and the mission. But then building a proper business, building a proper back office function that can support the organization, building the proper marketing function to drive that, um, you know, um, PR campaigns and, and employer brand campaigns and so forth to get the message out there, yeah. building the right engineering function to deliver on the actual execution and so forth. Lovely. How can people find out more about you? Yeah, so they can obviously find me on LinkedIn. Um, they can follow Neutromics as well. So we do a lot of messaging and, and job ads through LinkedIn um, or Twitter. We're active on Twitter now as well. So you can follow us at Neutromics. Fantastic. Well, thank you. I know I've got to leave you because you've got a meeting coming up. And so I want to thank you so much for your time, Hitesh, for sharing with us your work. I mean, the collaborations that you're doing at the moment to create this amazing technology. We can't wait for 2024 when it's released. Keep us posted, please. Uh, we'll be supporting you all the way. And um, this is quite, rem I just can't imagine how you're feeling because this is if pulling this off would be an, a remarkable feat for humanity. Yeah, thank you. Um, we, we'd like to, to achieve that one day. We don't obviously uh, think about that too much. Uh, we just focus <laughs> yeah, on delivering yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, uh, one actually just one plug I will make is now we are starting to get our message out there and show mm -hmm. what we're building. And we're going to be doing a lot in the next year, you know, showing the first in human trials and so forth. But we're getting great validation. We were accepted in the MedTech Innovator Program, which is a, a global program. Yes. So 1,100 companies applied. We were in the top 25. Mm -hmm. And there's some exciting announcements coming there. We got the state, Victorian State uh, Innovation Award for IIA. Wow. Uh, sorry, the IIA Awards. And uh, recently, we also got Technology Platform of the Year at a national award. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's great validation of the team's work and all the hard work that's going into this for everyone. And the leadership that's driving it, which is you and Peter Hitesh. Well done to you guys for the vision. Because that takes courage. Thank you. Uh, yeah, we set the vision, but it takes a, a village to execute yes, and, and deliver yes. on it. 100%. Cheering you all the way from Canberra, Australia. Thank you so much for your time, Hitesh. Thank you, Rita. Thank you so much for your attention on this Unbox Your Give podcast episode with Hitesh Mehta, episode 191. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to share it. Please make sure to forward it and please do leave a review on iTunes or on YouTube. Your comments, your feedback is the oxygen that keeps this podcast running. And for everyone who has, I truly appreciate it. And for those who are listening and who yet haven't, please do leave a comment, a review on iTunes or on YouTube. Thank you so much for your time. And my advice to myself and to you is that life is a gift and together, Let's unbox it. God bless.